0: Welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. From the latest archery equipment and expert shooting advice, to proven bowhunting tactics, and the sport's biggest personalities, we've got you covered. Now, here's your host, Editor Christian Byrd. Alright, welcome back to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio. We are the voice of bowhunting, and today we are going to be the voice of food plotting and a new... Uh, what I am going to refer to as a coming revolution in the food plot realm. And I have as our guest today, uh, Mr. Jason Snavely, who many of you will surely know as the Whitetails columnist uh, here at Peterson's Bowhunting and also the uh, owner of Drop Tine Wildlife Consulting and Drop Tine Seed Company. Jason, welcome to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio.
1: Hey, Christian, thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year.
0: Yeah, happy, uh, happy New Year exciting. to you. It is. It's an yeah. exciting time of year. It's. Uh, I saw you know a little meme on uh, social media a couple days ago. Uh, today is the first day, you know, or the first of 365 chapters, you know, in your book. So make <laughs> make it a good one. So yeah, we've got uh, we've got a new year on our hands, and uh, whether you were successful or unsuccessful in 2018, uh, it's time to start writing a new story and. So it's a great time to look ahead at our plans. But before we do that, I will say congratulations to you. You had a rather uh, good season. I don't know if you did a lot of killing yourself, but I know that you spent, <laughs> I mean, you may have, but I know what I really want to touch on is a shout out to your your kids, because I know you spent a lot of time in the stand with your son and your daughter last fall, and it looks like you guys had some tremendous hunting.
1: I do, yeah, and, and, and they did. Uh, these days, I, I serve more as a guide to them, and that's okay. That's Really, that's what I enjoy, uh, you know, from the killing standpoint. I. I'm not going to say I don't like it or I don't I don't have any interest in doing it. But, yeah, watching, you know, watching both my management program on small acreage, uh, kind of realize that dream and watching that come true. And uh, we've you know, it's been 11 years now, uh, 12 years uh, and actually my son's 12 years old. So it just happened to get started when he was born. But watching all that kind of come together. Uh, has really been rewarding but yeah they had a fantastic year my my 8 year old daughter Teddy is 2 for 2 now she killed her first buck last year uh killed a fantastic buck this year we've sent out the teeth uh, to have some enamelite done and i honestly don't think the buck is much younger than her um so just a real old bruiser uh, missing his right eye and then Grant my 12 year old Oh, I think he's five for five now. So um, five years in a row, and uh, their you know their role uh, has always been three and a half plus. Um, so you know, yeah, good good things going on here at Drop 10 Farms, and um, it's it's been fun teaching them how to manage for older age class deer on small acreage.
0: Yeah, that's uh, something that you've really been uh, a pioneer in. I would say is that small acreage management and the things that you've demonstrated through your 100 acres here in Pennsylvania. You know, 100 acres uh, with, you know, plenty of people and major roadways right in the immediate <laughs> area. And the amount of mature deer that you've not only been able to, you know, get on camera and, you know, hold for significant periods on your property, but actually harvest, you know, thanks to your kids, because let's face it, they are both better hunters than you are. Um, but, uh... They're effective it, killers. Yeah, uh, They're effective absolutely. killers, I'll give them that. I don't know about hunters. And... Uh, <laughs> But it's been amazing, you know, and, and and congratulations to Grant and Teddy, and you know, I'm always rooting for Grant because he's always rooting for the right football team. Grant is a, a fellow <laughs> New England Patriots fan, and uh, so I'm sure, yeah. you know, tell Grant that I'm pretty sure New England looks pretty solid this weekend against Bye, and uh, and I think they're going to handle by pretty handily, and then move on to whoever survives to face him here in another week, so... Um, I agree. I'll make I sure agree. to I'll make sure to circle up with Grant here sometime <laughs> next week, and we'll break it down. Okay?
1: Yeah, I know you guys kind of. He's on social media now, so he's always showing me your posts, and he gets a kick out of that. He is a, a big Patriots fan, uh, Cronk and Gronk and Brady, and, and he, he takes some heat for that, of course. And he's actually he's been a fan for quite a while, so. Uh, but anyway, yeah, my Teddy is actually a Dolphins fan. We, we spend a lot of time in Florida, so she's a Miami Dolphins fan. So the big game every year is when Miami plays plays New England. That's usually uh, uh, sort of a scuffle in the living room the whole time. Of course, you know how that went this year. But
0: well, Miami usually beats the Patriots in Miami, but then that's kind of a Pyrrhic victory because they never. <laughs> Make the playoffs. So. Anyway, we yeah, better okay. move on because people are definitely not interested in our football opinions. They no. Want, they want to hear food plots. So here's the thing, right? I think this is a great time of year to talk about food plots, first of all, just because, you know, here we are heading into the heart of the winter, and it's going to be kind of a downtime, and, and most of us are going to be spending a lot more time mm-hmm. indoors than we'd like for the next couple of months, and during that time, right, we're all going to get antsy, and we're going to, if we sure. haven't already, we're going to start thinking about the spring and, and you know, and new seasons, and for those who have food plots in the past, right, they've probably got ideas on things that they want to tweak for 2019, every year, of course, there's things thousands of hunters out there who maybe haven't done food plots in the past but they've been wanting to and and so I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this who are in that camp too and they're like this is going to be the year right that I'm going to I'm going to start a food plot and and you know you had actually mentioned something to me uh, or actually, I don't think it was to me specifically on, on, on Facebook with a group that you have going there and talking about some of these completely, uh, I'm going to call them radical ideas about food plotting. And not radical in that, you know, nothing like this has ever been done before. But in the food plot world, you're talking about a completely new paradigm in food plotting that uses environmentally sustainable methods that allows you to produce very, very successful, viable food plots with dramatically reduced amount of fertilizer Mm. and chemical inputs and it improves soil biology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jason, talk to me. What do you call this new philosophy (laughs) that you're kind of embracing?
1: Wow. I'm used to being on the other side of the podcasting, so I'm I'm glad I have my notebook. I, I just wrote down seven main talking points that I'll address. I'm sure I'll get to at least three of them here one at a time. But, uh, yeah, so so I, when you mentioned these big buzzwords, you and I were just talking about it before recording. We talked about it. Uh, obviously, you're the editor of a popular hunting magazine. But when you start talking about, you know, uh, sustainability and environmental, people get kind of turned off, so to speak. At least, you know, I'm a hunter. I grew up a hunter. I've always been that hunter biologist who, uh, you know, I've made jokes about spraying herbicides, and and I'm not attacking any one, you know, company glyphosate. uh, uh, Monsanto gets hammered, but, you know, I've always been that guy, right? I've joked that I've had 2,4 D in my eye, you know, seven or eight times, and and glyphosate, you know, in just about every orifice you can imagine. So I'm probably not the healthiest guy in the world. So the, the, the fact that, I'm sort of leading this in the wildlife arena is, is really ironic to those who know me well. So that has really been a wow factor to a lot of my clients and those who, who know me. So getting back to this, yeah, the, the Facebook group that, that I created is is called Regenerative Wildlife Agriculture. And I'm not a part of this movement where we have to rename everything and be careful about what we call things. But, you know, to me, the term food plot is, is almost antiquated. I still like it. We could still use it but I don't think it fully encapsulates what we're looking to do now. And, and before I get into that, I I think it's important, you know, as, as a biologist, I've always enjoyed taking the science and kind of mixing it up, making it sexy and, and applying it to real world on the ground applications. And that's, that's what we're trained to do, uh, you know, as a, as a bio, as a field biologist. So, When when I start to hear some of this stuff, um, it's very much counterintuitive to how we learn. So, you know, very first and foremost is most biologists kind of feel like they can't ever change their minds. Right. And and this is one of the reasons I avoided the the public, the, the state, the federal agencies, because as a biologist, I want to follow science, which changes by the day. And I want to be able to make recommendations that I think are most applicable to a particular property or what have you. But I also want to be able to change my mind. That, that doesn't mean I wasn't knowledgeable at the time that I first set my opinion. It just means that something has changed my mind. And, you know, when I learned how to food plot, um, <laughs> you know, most of us food plotters, let's face it, we're not farmers. We didn't grow up on farms. We didn't say one day, hey, you know what, let's take some of this profitable row crop egg out of profitability, forget yield, let's plant for deer, instead of harvesting it and running it over the the scale for a big fat check at the end of the year, let's not harvest it and let the deer eat it and shoot them while they come on. That's just, and that's not practical. So most of us were guys and girls who have no, or very little farming background, right? So- If they were anything like me, you know, I was a wildlife biologist, you know, growing things made sense, but I didn't grow up on a tractor and I didn't grow up in a farm field. So I had to learn it all. So in order to learn it all, I looked around me and I met the biggest farmer in the county. And I said, hey, I'm buying a tractor. Okay, 30 some 1000 dollars later, I got my New Holland. Hey, I'm looking to buy a, a set of discs and a, and a moldboard plow and a chisel plow and a cul de and the whole nine yards. And all of this came from him. You, you know, you have to till up the ground and, you know, create a nice firm seed bed so you have good seed to soil contact. So I, I think the most important part to understand up front here is, as I ramble is, A, we reserve the right to change our minds, period. And B... Very few of us were farm kids growing up who knew how to do this, so we looked to conventional farmers to learn how to how to food plot. So that that kind of covered two or three of my talking points um, that yeah. I jotted down here. But yeah,
0: sure. And uh, and when you think about it, right? So you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking. You know, I'm agreeing with you in my mind because I'm like, yeah, as food plotters, like what you basically described is what my thought was, is like we're like we're junior farmers, if you will. So when you think about what those of us who, like you say, we're not really farmers, but we see farmers, right, and we see what they do, and we've just kind of replicated that. So think about any, you know, hunting TV show, right? Everyone runs the B-roll of putting in the food plots. Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. and what do you see? You see uh, a tractor or an ATV or a side-by-side I, I, with a big sprayer on the back, you know, and you've got to be out there spraying, uh, you know, your Roundup on all the weeds, and, and then you, mm-hmm. you, you've you got your disc on there, and your disc, I mean, you know, it's not, and this isn't, listen, I know that my intention isn't to put anybody down, and, and I don't think yours is either. This is just the... the mm-hmm. This is the standard right if there's if there's sort of a standard, the standard of food plotting is spray a lot of herbicide, uh, till up the ground, and throw a lot of uh, fertilizer uh, on, on, well, on yeah. the ground too. And so, sure. um, and you did that, right? I mean, that's what you just Absolutely. described. I mean, this is up until recently, this is what you've been doing, which is essentially what everybody has been doing, right?
1: Absolutely. The, the conventional model suggests that you can't form in nature's image You must apply an amazing amount of synthetic fertilizers and herbicides and yield, 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 yield. We need to yield as much as we can. And being in business, this part hit me uh, pretty hard is that, you know, you look at your yield that in business, we call that a top line manager, right? The guy who looks at his revenue, well, I'm a $30 billion company. Well, that doesn't mean anything. What are your expenses? right? If you have twenty nine billion million in expenses, okay, that's one thing. So, you know, uh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we've learned from these farmers, we're doing it this way. I, you know, sort of my, <laughs> I, I was uh, not to make it sound, uh, you know, all cliche, but I, I had been keeping an eye on, on some of my fields and my food plots. And, and of course, you know, you mentioned that the fact that I'm, I'm managing a hundred acres and, you know, that, that's 230 to 300 acres is probably average for most of my clients. And, of course, there's larger properties dragging that, you know, pulling that up and smaller properties dragging it down. But you know, anywhere from 20 to 30 acres on up to a few thousand acres is really the, the meat and potatoes of what I manage. So, you know, I always go back to this. You know, I, I worked on an internship in South Texas in the 90s when I was still in college. Uh, the ranch I was on was 109,000 acres. And George Strait, this is a Pennsylvania boy going to South Texas, 170, 180-inch animals everywhere, kind of like the places you hunt. George Strait buys a ranch right next door, 7,000 acres, plops up a bunch of feeders. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of George Strait. Plops up a bunch of feeders. His manager fills those feeders. He flies in, parks the plane in the hangar, jumps in his jacked-up GMC, jumps in the stand, and kills a 180 to 190 within an hour. The ranch owner owners uh, were livid and frustrated, and, and had meetings and said, "We got to get together with them and make a plan. They have to help us fence it. This this isn't this isn't right." And I can remember thinking to myself, "Holy smokes! If if they're losing bucks on one hundred nine thousand acres." I'll never be able to do this. Uh, nobody can do this. So at that point, that's kind of when I, when I set the goal of, of working as a private consultant and trying to identify ways to make our properties look like islands to whitetails, not to, to, to YouTube or, or to somebody looking at it to buy it, but to whitetails. So that's how I, I ran into this this farming in nature's image, as we call it, or biomimicry, is I'm constantly reading science. And I'm constantly trying to determine what can I do on the ground to make my properties more competitive than the surrounding neighbors. And All to right, be so completely honest with you, competing what? with farmers is fun, and, it, and it's it, it, it's actually it's my sweet spot at this point. So go ahead. You know right. you had a different thought.
0: Well, yeah, I was going to say, let me, so let me throw this at you as a way to move the conversation forward. Okay. What's wrong with the way that everyone's doing it? I mean, I've hunted on a lot of good properties, as you kind of jabbed me on, right? I mean, I've hunted on some great whitetail properties around the country that have food plot programs, and they're doing sure. it this way that we've been talking about, you know, with with herbicides and and chemical based mm-hmm. fertilizers and 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 traditional you know farming practices, and their food plots look great, and there's a lot of big deer running mm-hmm. around there. Um, so what am I missing, Jay? What's
1: the Their food plots look great, but hey, we've all been doing this now for 10, 15, 20 years, including myself. We've hit a glass ceiling, as two of my mentors, Dr. Damaris and Strickland from Mississippi State, have sort of defined. We're hitting this glass ceiling. So yeah, you're right. Their food plots look great. Some of them are yielding, uh, you know, corn and soybean yields where they want to be, 200 bushels plus, you know, but their soils are completely destroyed. The nutrient density of the plants that they're producing is losing its value compared to where we were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, okay? This is where the science, where the rubber meets the road for me. When I saw, in this is in human beings, that the nutrient density in oranges, they tested some oranges in a study, and they actually found an orange that didn't have any vitamin C, Right, So all of these green leafy veggies we see at the grocery store, a vegetable is not a vegetable. There's nutrient density, and and they can only utilize so many of these inorganic minerals. So this is where the rubber hits the road for me. So I start to look into this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so what are we doing to our soils? And you start to research soils. they're, They're... the, the current way that we test and study soils is based on chemistry it's it's not looking at the soil biology as 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 a whole right and that's we need to shift our our outlook in the soil biology and that made sense to me as a biologist and the, the, the I got it. I got. I got
0: it. I got to interrupt you. I got to interrupt you because, again, I,
1: I'm just. I'm getting the money. I'm getting the money.
0: Well, I'm. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm. a. I'm a relative. You know, layman compared to you when it comes to this. And so you're talking about <coughs> focusing on soil chemistry versus soil biology. And I'm thinking, okay, soil chemistry, you're talking about the, the soil test kits. I mean, again, I'm just a layman. You want to do a food plot? What, is, what do they say? Well, you gotta you got to test the soil. So you get a soil sample, you send it out, and that's soil chemistry, right? They tell you what the pH of the soil is. They tell you how much uh, nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium you have to add. Add to the soil, right? Yeah, sort sort of, in a way. But the, the, and, and, and so you're saying that's perfect. a very but 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 I'm trying to understand what you're you're telling me. You're saying that that is sort of what we've all been doing, and we just focus on that. But that is an incomplete view of of of, of the soil. Is
1: that basically what you're it saying? And, and absolutely. and absolutely. I think here in the next 10, 20 years, that traditional chemical soil test will phase out. I, I recorded a fantastic a fascinating podcast with Dr. Rick Haney and and not to bore you with that, but Dr. Rick Haney works for the USDA. He's a soil guy. Um, and Dr. Haney developed a new way, the soil Haney health test of of testing soils from a biological standpoint. So Dr. Haney kind of helped me come to the realization that we have completely destroyed and depleted the biology of our soils. So if I can improve that, it seems like I could increase the level of attractiveness of attractiveness of my property, increase the nutrient density in my forages, and maybe break through that glass ceiling and produce bigger bucks and attract more deer. That to me is a consultant who only gets paid based on productivity and happy clients made sense to me. So then I move forward into this this whole soil biology thing, right? Which is kind of boring but really exciting for a guy like me. Ultimately, what we've come to find is that we can save not only the ecosystem, which is important, but we can save a boatload of money and in synthetic inputs. I work with clients all the time. One of my other bullet points I jotted down here was budget. I work with clients, just, just worked with a new one yesterday. I actually tried to turn him away because I didn't feel like his budget on his 230 acres was realistic. I didn't feel like he was at a point where he should move forward. And I don't think he'd like to hear that. But let's face it, food plots are not cheap. They're just not. Yeah, absolutely. But
0: not to do them well, right? I mean, I think the truth of the matter is, is you can try to do them cheap, but then you kind of get cheap results, right? I mean, there's lots of people who like to just try and throw some seed on the ground for lack of a, you know, a more. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't but, work, yeah. right? I mean, there's a process. Not, not the, not the,
1: uh, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, a plant requires. Right? Going back to seventh grade science, Grant's in seventh grade, now and I get a kick out of it because, quite frankly, this is this is a seventh. grade, grade level of science, you know, plants create photosynthesis or photosynthesis. So in other words, they, they absorb that, that solar energy and they create really cool things in the soil. So, you know, I don't want to get off the budget part because I, I've had so many clients who I have turned away from doing food plots because of the cost. And, and you know, farmers are the same way. Their, their, their biggest input by input, I mean, uh, cost or, or synthetic inputs, fertilizers, uh, herbicides, insecticides, pesticides, typically is fertilizer. Nitrogen is not cheap. And as Dr. Haney pointed out, there was a time, believe it or not, when fertilizer was really inexpensive, I'm reading a book that was published in 1943 right now, and he's talking about fertilizers kind of like we talk about technology, right? Some really cool new technology comes out right now, like a drone that can deliver a package, and we look at the cost, holy smokes, can't wait till that comes down. That's how he's, he's referencing fertilizers and saying, man, they're com- becoming very inexpensive. The war is over. There's nothing else to do with all these, bi- these inputs. So they're making fertilizers, and th- there's a huge supply of them. That's not the case today. Fertilizer is extremely expensive. And the seed cost is a drop in the bucket compared to the fertilizer cost. So if I came to you and said, I know when you edit my articles, you always say, so where where does the rubber meat throw? What, what does this have to do with the bow hunter? You're not in the science world anymore. I guess what this has to do with the bow hunter is, number one, you do not need to buy plows, chisel plows, moldboard plows, uh, discs. May, maybe may a disc at some point, but you, you really don't need that kind of conventional Equipment and number two, we can now farm in nature's image, so to speak. And and I think we should probably get into that a little bit more Um, and and rely on natural fertilizers from plants. Plants. This is important. Plants, along with photosynthesis trapping that solar energy, creates soil biology. Creates carbon inputs into the soil and they naturally fertilize our fields. So so that's that's where all of this is going. And that's really where I, I think I want to uh, drill down here now a little bit more. I know this part's boring, but no it's at, not at it's some not point,
0: it's not boring. it's not boring okay.
1: I, I'm the guy who likes to read the science right so I'm kind of going backwards. I go back to my old soil textbooks um, and I've been laughed at in my office here. I have my old soils textbooks from the 90s and I'm flipping through. yeah, it's talking about soil organic matter. and you saw on the regenerative wildlife agri- um, uh, regenerative wildlife agriculture group I posted some stuff about organic matter. Organic matter, as it turns out, is extremely important. It's less than 10% of the soil. For most, it's less than 2%. But yet it holds this huge cost-saving potential that we need to trap.
0: I gotta I gotta I gotta interrupt you Go Jason. Ahead. I gotta interrupt, interrupt. you because I'm, I wanna keep you on point here or what I think is on point which may not be but in at any rate. Okay, let's bring this back to the bow hunter mindset here. and this is something that I had talked about, you know, before we started the show. I think that as sportsmen, right, as hunters, uh, as lovers of of wildlife, as people who enjoy communing with nature, right, we all like to think of ourselves as conservationists. Okay, And, you know, you think back to some of the the icons of um, conservation, like an Aldo loophole in Sand County Almanac and, and someone who, you know, believed in this idea of being a steward of the earth and, and leaving a property better than you found it, right? And, sure, and we, sure. all, we all like the romance of that, right? And we all we all like to put our head on the pillow at night and think, you know, yeah, I'm a good hunter, uh, I'm a good steward of, of the deer herd, uh, of the properties where I hunt, but really like you uh, the first to 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 use your phrase you know where the rubber meets the road Are we really, you know, especially when it comes to this food plotting movement that has gained so much popularity over the past two or three decades and the way that we're doing Mm it, are we leaving this better than we found it? And basically what you're saying is, no, we're not. And so to get you back on point, what I need you to do is to explain (laughs) as simply as possible. Explain to me, Jason, what happens Over time, as we continue to work the ground with these sort of modern standard practices that you're saying are depleting our soil and its quality, and then uh, compare and contrast that, right, to what you're talking about, and explain to me what you're doing now that's so different than that and so much better.
1: So, yeah, we've known this for a very long time. Okay, so I'm reading a book, actually, for the third time, that was published in 1943. Just one sentence on page three. The truth is that no one has ever advanced the scientific reason for plowing. Now, that's The Plowman's Folly by Edward Faulkner. He's right up there with Aldo Leopold, uh, you know, with amazing writings out there that everybody should read. So when I read that from the 1940s, I think to myself— where have we gone? What what has happened? Right. So, when you think about plowing, plowing completely destroys the soil structure. It's a, it destroys all of the soil organic matter, which, by the way, is the house that holds all these fantastic nutrients that we can capture through plants and not have to have synthetic inputs, right? So, but we have been doing it all wrong. I'm going to include myself here. I'm not taking, yes, I own a seed company. And actually, I've, as you know, I've sold conventionally uh, for, for many, many years and helped clients for 16, 17 years with the conventional way of food plotting. But let me start by saying this. Where in nature can you walk out there Find one of nature's food plots that represents a monoculture. In other words, it's all white clover. It's all the dino clover. It's all chicory. It's all soybeans, corn, wheat. You name it. It doesn't exist. So that leads us to ask this a deeper question based on Mr. Faulkner's comment, 1943. Where does nature plow the soil? she doesn't she doesn't go out there dig up all that organic matter flip it down into the b horizon or closer to the b horizon and say there you go you got great seed to soil contact so it makes zero sense so what we have done over years is is destroyed and depleted this soil organic matter does that make sense
0: yeah that makes sense now okay. and, so, and so, but and also but 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 touch on the other parts of it too. Like okay, so yeah, we plow, but we also put a lot of synthetic fertilizer in there too. Sure. And I'm working I'm working towards
1: that. But and before yeah, okay. that what yeah. where else can you and this is this is this is where it, it matters. This is where science becomes sexy. Where else can you walk out there? Where Mother Nature has been left alone, and finds bare, completely denuded soil that does not have what we now call an armor over it, you really can't, unless you go to some of the places that have you know been desert for many many years and lost the soil. So, so not only do we need to stop plowing and destroying the structure. But we need to keep an armor over the soil. Now think about farming. Farmers will, will harvest their cash crop. And, and a lot of us know the term cover crops, right? I think you probably have even heard cover crop. Uh, you know, so they're throwing cereal rye down to sort of hold the soil. Right over the winter sure. months.
0: Sure. Uh, yeah. So, Oats so, or, or wheat or, or yeah.
1: Right. Exactly. Kurticalia, rye. Absolutely. So that's a great practice, but it's underutilized. So that's a great attempt. But we're still using, and you could drive around the farm fields right now, you'll find some farmers who are using rye, wheat, or trit, something like that, triticale, to hold that soil. So, moving forward though, which that, that's a perfect lead into diversity, where can you go in nature and see a loblolly pine plantation that Mother Nature planted, right? It, it, you can't. If you walk into an old field that has been left alone, you're going to find a, a, a diversity of not only wildlife and insects, but, but plants. You're going to find grasses. You're going to find legumes. You're going to find the broad leaves. You're going to find all kinds of different plants. So where have we failed in food plotting? Well, you can go right down the, the or I'm on number three in diversity. We've been plowing. We've been disking. Um, we, we plant brassica-based, including myself in the past, we plant brassica-dominated food plots in the fall. That become what in the spring? Completely devegetated. You could almost go out and play basketball in these things. These fields are, are – there's nothing growing. And that's that's great from a competition standpoint, but you've just – invited further loss of all of this organic matter right through wind erosion and water erosion and, and not only have you done that but you've just invited all of your weed species to grow and outcompete what you're about to plant so moving forward after that is is living roots we've got to, we've got to maintain and nature maintains living roots throughout the year you know this this winter's been mild but even in cold zones there's always a root system underground growing. So we we look at the food plot system or, or industry, right? From the, the '80s, some of them were dabbling in the '70s. There's a popular food plot book uh, published by the QDMA, where they you know they argue about who was the first one to do this. It, it doesn't matter. It, they all push and promote monocultures. I mean, sure, sometimes you get clover, chicory, fantastic. But when I talk about diversity, I'm talking about nine, 10, sometimes upwards of 30 and 50 different species.
0: All right, all right. I got to interrupt you again. I got to interrupt you again, man. Well, what are you talking about? You're telling me that Jason Snavely's not planting clover fields anymore. You're not planting soybean fields. You're not planting uh, brassica plots anymore. What, What are you telling me here, man? This is crazy talk.
1: Yeah, no, what I'm telling you is all of these plants are in the toolbox, but they're applied at different times. So, so these, these companies and, and people who are promoting the planting of, of a big, you know, tall, leafy Ladino clover that, that pumps a boatload of nitrogen into the soil. By the way, enough nitrogen that you don't need to go buy nitrogen to produce 150 to 160 uh, bushel per acre corn. What I am telling you is we need to start using these plants smarter and in proportions so that we rebuild the soil biology so we can get away from relying on these synthetic inputs and you know I don't know if I'll get in trouble for using this analogy or not and I, I doubt it but the best analogy I've come up with while watching my soils Respond to a major cutback in synthetics. By that I mean, you know, Roundup, um, all other chemicals, herbicides, insecticides, pesticides, uh, and and inorganic fertilizers that cost a whole pile of money. My soils are responding to me in a biological way, and they're are you know, weed infestations just just coming on horribly right? And that's my soil speaking to me. So it's almost like someone who's addicted to drugs trying to come off of that drug. You don't just cold turkey, pull them off of it. You wean. There's a weaning process to get off of it. So here's the problem. We, We tend to plant monocultures, right? We plant all clover. So how can a guy make one small positive impact? If you've been planting that clover plot that you try to get three to five years and you fight the grass invasion, guess what the grass invasion is? That's Mother Nature saying, hey, your carbon to nitrogen ratio, and it looks science-y, but it's fact. Your carbon to nitrogen ratio is way off. I want you to have more grasses in this blend. So what do we do? We get a clethidim or a Um, know, Some of you call it a rest or eight, eight or nine other chemicals, and we spray it. Again, counterproductive to what Mother Nature wants. So what I'm promoting at this point with my seed company and hopefully other seed companies, and many don't have the flexibility to do this, unfortunately, is to stop uh, cannibalizing our soils with monocultures, to stop only planting brassica-based – there are so many blends out there. That are they're not proportioned right, and and, and I, I think from moving forward, we need to focus on the carbon nitrogen ratio. We need to have a diversity. I, I call them a, a cocktail blend, and I've got several that I'm i actually have been working on. It that's, uh, that's why my desk is piled high with a mess. I've been working on. Um, I've been using some with my clients and my properties uh, that include a diverse mix, a cocktail, if you will, uh, a biological primer of. Broad leaves legumes grasses brassicas the whole nine yards did I answer your question
0: yeah so so what does <laughs> what does your food plot program look like now compared to what it used mm-hmm. to look like like talk to me about you know how much you know just for your property um, you know a hundred acre property I I don't know exactly sure. how many acres of food plots sure. you know you have there Um, But talk to me in raw numbers, you know, like how much how much chemicals and fertilizer, you know, did you use at a peak and where are you at now? Where are you trying to get Um, one thing that you haven't talked about at all yet, which I think is a big part of of what you're doing now, maybe differently than what you're doing before is a seed drill. Um, You know, maybe you want to touch on that uh, and how maybe that's changed the way that you plant. But talk to me about some of these things in just practical terms you know like how much of this sure. stuff were you using and how much are you using now and how much has that saved you you know in real dollars
1: so yeah a lot of that is still yet to, you know, we're still in the early stages um you know i could tell you i've spent uh, i have 100 acres I, I you know technically food plus no some of the areas are, are managed in different you know, their food their, their forages for whitetails but, but not maybe a food plot, as you would consider. So, but roughly 30, um, 40 acres that I'm, you know, kind of working with every year. And, you know, I, I, in the past, I could easily, and I understand I'm I'm conducting research and I'm using products, you know, to to try to find the secret, the magic bullet. I could easily spend 20, 30,000 a year just buying synthetic inputs and uh, the latest and greatest and and you know uh, foliar sprays and and uh, things in a jug with big antlers um but you know when i bought the farm in 06 the the idea of no tilling appealed to me I, I i didn't buy a no-till drill right away i went to the local Pheasants Forever chapter. And, you know, you can go to the NRCS and, and multiple places and rent one. You know, one of the most common things I hear is, well, I can't afford one of these no-till drills. They're too expensive, right? This is coming from the same guy who has a $1,100 phone and an $1,800 bow and driving a $75,000 truck. You can't afford, you choose not to afford, but you can, you can go rent one. You know, I, I would give the, Forever chapter of uh, donation every year to allow me to borrow their uh, their grain drill. So I've always really used a, a no-till drill here. Having said that, I, I've also <laughs> uh, plowed both both uh, deep moldboard, you know, flipping the whole soil horizon. And also chisel plowed, and I felt based on what I was taught that what that did was it broke up the it broke up the soil, broke up the, the the clumps, and 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 made a real nice seed um, bed that I could then. Roll over and make it just pristine, and they look pretty. I've got some pictures still; they they look pretty, but it's kind of like a park to to a white tail. It looks pretty, but it's just not from a biological standpoint. So that's how I used to do it. And I had a planter. I had an Atchison planter for a while. There's a very small, but but major difference between a drill and a planter. Uh, mine was purchased from New Zealand, where they farm grasses heavily. So basically, it it it, <laughs> it required me to to still till the soil to create a nice seedbed that my planter could efficiently drag through without picking up a whole bunch of thatch and making a mess so yeah I've always broken the soils here because my farmer said that's what I need to do Um, but, but it wasn't until I realized that some of these rocks that I was dealing with were practically the size of my head and things were, were being done wrong. So I had an epiphany sitting out there, um, one year, this, about this time of year, looking at my completely naked and denuded soils. The brassica based products are amazing, as um, most of the listeners and food plotters know, for attracting deer, right? They produce the yield, the tonnage. Uh, the green leafy veg- vegetation is very attractive at that time of year when we want to shoot deer. And even better yet, we can produce these giant bulbs and turnips and, uh, you know, it's just, it's a best of both world scenario. So when I was looking at these fields, I'm thinking to myself that I'm missing the boat, right? This is kind of like a billboard on a major interstate that's only half utilized. Why not use the whole thing? At that point, I started blending uh, kind of custom blends for myself and my clients that incorporated some of the annual clovers and biennials that would then come back the following year. So we, so we had some food and we didn't, you know, clean the table, so to speak. Um, So at that, you know, at this point, again, I'm only, uh, there's a weaning process. So I'm only three years into this whole process from, from the word go, uh, last growing season, I hit it pretty hard. I purchased what's called a roller crimper. Um, you know, we think about every plant we grow, we essentially have to kill it. Right. And, you know, if winter doesn't kill it, uh, we have to kill it with a chemical. So I'm trying to get away from, from the herbicides. I slashed my herbicide use last year. Um, you know, probably used to purchase every year. I don't know, a dozen to 15, uh, jugs of Roundup. Uh, last year. I, I probably used three or four, um, major weed infestations in some areas, but that's okay. I'm going uh, I'll, to, I'll get that under control. So that, that's how things are changing here is I'm not going completely organic. Um, I'm, I'm slowly weaning off the herbicides and what I'm focusing on is using plants, harnessing the solar power of the energy to create more organic matter, better soils and natural organic fertilizers through plant decomposition.
0: Okay, when you talk about that, again, just to put it into layman's terms, you're saying that by, I know that some plants, and you can explain this a little better, some plants will actually um, put different nutrients into the soil while they're growing. Um, You're talking about other plants decomposing in the soil and adding nutrients that way. But basically, in a nutshell, what you're talking about is choosing what you're planting, where you're planting it, and rotating. Mm -hmm. these various, you know, food plants that, you know, the deer are utilizing as food, you're rotating them in such a way that they're complementing one another in what they're doing for the overall long-term health of your soil.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, very, very good way of putting it. It's time to proportion these blends differently. Um, You know, I've always enjoyed the art, of, of making a blend because just because the blend is say 30% brassicas doesn't mean your field's going to look like 30% brassicas. I probably shouldn't be saying this because there are still the major food clock companies don't get this. They, they've never really gone out to the field to see how it translates in the field. So yeah, absolutely. It's time to, to blend. It, it's an art and it's it's becoming a uh, an art that I've really enjoyed with you know the, the cover crops out there are planted uh, by farmers to for, for multiple reasons, whether it's to minimize erosion or to add carbon to the soil or nitrogen to the soil. Um, and it's funny when I tell them what I'm doing, first of all, they think I'm crazy. Um, but what I have done is I've blended the art of cover cropping for cash crops with okay, which of these species forages are not only better for the soil, but which ones are more attractive to whitetails. And here's what, we, what we're seeing. This is pretty exciting. There are people who have done this. There are clients who have done this and some of my associates who have done this. And not only are they able to plant and grow fantastic looking, yielding corn with natural nitrogen, with with biologically fixed nitrogen from uh, legumes, but they're also eliminating synthetic input fertilizers. so they're limiting eliminating the cost so here's a number that's pretty pretty neat to know there's you mentioned how plants can can biologically fix certain nutrients and, and bring them into the, the soil from the atmosphere there's 32,000 tons of atmospheric nitrogen above every acre of land so uh, this is what I'll, this year when when the listeners go to buy nitrogen whether it's triple 13 triple 10 or you're buying urea or something Custom blended. Look at that first number, right? It's, it goes N, P, and K. The first number in that fertilizer is your nitrogen. There's 32,000 tons of atmospheric nitrogen hovering above every single acre that you have. If we can use plants to capture that biological, that that inorganic form in the atmosphere and turn it into an organic, usable form, we don't need to buy and dump all of this nitrogen into our soils. So what, give me an example of a plant that fixes
0: nitrogen from the atmosphere into the dirt.
1: Well, obviously the, the clovers um, are, are, you know, pretty much king when it comes to that. Um, an Austrian winter pea does very well with that. The the um, the soybeans um, do a fantastic job of pumping, you know, upwards of 200, uh, hundred and fifty pounds of nitrogen per acre into the soil and you know i I've, I've seen plots uh, that were you know they were planted with the right legume blends and this is all based off of some of the biological soil testing but each each soil is requiring sort of a custom blend uh, proportioned, as you were mentioning, proportions properly to bring that carbon-nitrogen ratio back to balance, right? So, so you know, when we want to pump nitrogen into the soil, uh, the legumes, as most uh, most know, are, are the ultimate go-to. Now, the, the problem – I mentioned a little bit earlier about cannibalizing the soil. We, we, those of you who have clover plots that, that are more than a year or two years going – you're completely depleting the soil. So most of that nitrogen is not not, not really utilized until the plant dies. People don't understand that. Most of it has – that nitrogen is is utilized biologically once your clover plot dies.
0: Yeah, that's the other thing I was going to ask you too is, you know, if the clover is putting nitrogen into the soil, that's a good thing. What is the clover using and depleting from the soil?
1: Well, yeah, everything else, and and in that form, carbon. Which there, there's very little carbon left in a soil. I can show you the biological soil test, the uh, Haney Health test from from my fields, and it was actually there were some fields that I was trying to. <laughs> I was embarrassed to be farming on. If I'm being honest, these are fields that should have been planted in uh, perennial. Uh, wildflowers and forbs and, and brassicas and, and legumes and left alone. And I was planting them because, hey, my farm's a billboard, right? I need to put as much food on it as I can because those two kids who were two for two and five for five, you know, that's a lot of pressure, man. I got to produce. But I started to look at these soils and say, okay, what if I, uh, you know, the, the slope's not too bad. What if I rebuild this organic matter through the right – application of plants and that's when I came out with a product called <clears throat> well it didn't really have a name but it, it was clovers and grains and really it should have been clovers and grasses because the the oats uh, the triticale and the wheat and the rye those are that, that's a grass plant technically so when I started to put those plants in balance to climb in the soil and I, I, I didn't really know that this would work but when rick haney who's an absolute soil genius down in texas got my soil results and there's actually a podcast that i do that, that um he brought this out in the on the podcast he said there's one particular soil that you call the rock garden imagine that right that doesn't look that bad so that that was kind of a point that where, where everything came together for me is hey I'm on to something. Obviously, I'm not a, a pioneer. There's There's been guys doing this, but this is, this is legitimate stuff. He's been able to not even see my property, not even hear about what I'm doing. Pick one out of eight or nine different soil samples and say, whatever you're doing on the ground on this particular plot is improving your soil biology. Keep doing it.
0: So what does... You know what does this look like for for a regular bow hunter uh, like me? If I want to, uh, you know, I want to do food plots, and mm-hmm. I, I want to do them. I want to do them as responsibly as, as I as I can, but I don't want to sacrifice effectiveness or attractiveness. Sure. Um, What do you recommend, you know, to, to somebody? What if I came to you, Jason, and I said, hey, I've got, uh, I've got a few acres here at, uh, at a property that I hunt that I can turn into a food plot here. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a fallow field or a, or a corner of the property where the landowner said, hey, you know, you knock yourself out. Do what you want over there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what are you going to tell me to do that's different than, you know, one of the big boys? In the seed uh, food plotting industry, are going to tell me to do? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, this is something that I've been doing a lot of lately, uh, both on the on the phone and on the ground. Is is first of all diversity. I, I would encourage diversity. Um, unfortunately, there are not that many commercially available blends out there that encourage diversity. And being on the back end of the seed industry, I could tell you because it's expensive. It's expensive to source. It's expensive to blend. Um, I just got shot down by one of the major uh, suppliers, blenders, fulfillment companies with a blend of 29 different species. And they told me I could that that they couldn't do it. And that essentially I was crazy. Right. So and I'll get it done. There are firms out there who do it. So I would encourage diversity. You know, it amazes me how many um, consultants or, or seed companies will tell a food plotter. I just had one actually yesterday or the day before emailed me, a, a consultant in the Midwest told him on his, it was a half or a third acre food plot to plant soybeans Or a blend that was kind of created with some of this um, in mind, soil rebuilding. It was it was almost like giving someone uneducated uh, on on how to use a weapon, a loaded weapon, because it was a very high proportion in brassicas, and it really didn't fix anything, but the name implied that it would. And he said, "I was told to plant that or forage soybeans." I thought to myself, "If you have more than three deer." on a half of an acre and you plant forage soybeans, the likelihood of you actually realizing the full benefit of that financial investment (laughs) is very much slim to none. Unless for some reason your, your, your deer herd is shot out, you know, at which point that's fine. So I would encourage diversity. What I'm seeing here on the farm and other clients are seeing is when we plant these diverse biological primers or cocktails of not only cover crop species that improve the soil biology, but also those that whitetails thrive on and and are attracted to, uh, the, the, these smaller plots can handle more browse pressure. You know, I, I used to, we used to put up high fences, um, you know, now that, that great companies like Gallagher are out there you know, creating electric fencing that actually works to keep deer out of I had clients spending five upwards of $30,000 on high fenced cyclone fencing enclosures where we could plant a forage let it grow, open up two 12 foot gates on either end and let the deer feed, I mean if you want to talk about uh, treating a symptom and not attacking the main problem that's almost embarrassing to admit so I would, I would encourage diversity. I would encourage them to think with an open mind and, and patience. I, I started with a client last year on this very um, journey. They were spending way too much on inputs, and he was expecting to see—we all are, right? We're Americans. He wanted to see an immediate response in one year. Um, that's just not—that's not, not going to happen. But I can tell you that in talking to folks who have been doing this for a long time. The Rodale Institute in southeast Pennsylvania does a lot of organic. Um, they've cut synthetic inputs. Uh, they tell me that although deer hunting is not their, their thing, that during deer season, deer are so attracted to their research facility that everyone asks for permission to hunt, and they don't understand why there's so many deer focused on that property. Now, I personally think... And this is where we're headed with this. I personally think that when we step out of the way and let mother nature do her thing, these plants become more nutrient dense. And whitetails are concentrated selectors, right? They're not browsers. They're not grazers. That's wrong. They're concentrated selectors. If you've ever followed one with a leash on it or in a pen, they will amazingly sort through all of these little plants Sniff, lick, test, taste, pull one particular tiny little piece of forage out and eat it. That's because they know what they're looking for. Um, and, and not to go on, but anybody interested in this, you know, Gabe Brown uh, out of North Dakota, it owns a 5,000 acre ranch in North Dakota. And he, he's kind of one of the, him and Ray Archuleta, David Brant. he's one of the pioneers in this. Um, regenerative agriculture, completely fascinating. They too have multiple income streams from hogs to cows to, you know, cash crops, cover crops. He told me the other day that, he, uh, that their state agency in North Dakota is documenting deer traveling upwards of 55 miles as a crow flies. These are radio collared deer, 55 miles to feed in his not food plots, but in his diverse... Farming in nature's image. Now, if you don't think that's profound, I don't. You know, I don't oh,
0: know what else. I, I think it's very profound. This is what you're saying, okay? And again, this is me just, you know, I'm listening and listening. But every now and then, you're hitting on something good, Jason. And, and, uh, and you know,
1: no, the science per- stuff kind of gets me crazy.
0: It perks <laughs> my ears up as a bow hunter because basically, what you're saying, okay, in theory and in practice, is you. You've got drop tine farms, okay, and then let's say I was your neighbor, okay, and I had 100 acres, Mm -hmm. and you're planting your food plots, and I'm planting my food plots, and I'm doing it the conventional way and you're doing it this new way or this more progressive way maybe it's not new maybe it's the old way mm-hmm. right the that sure. the sure. natural way and you're, you're saying right. you're, you're right. saying that over time even though we might have some of the same plants Planted in our food plots, that as time goes by, my soil's getting worse and worse every year, your soil's getting better and better every year, and even though my brassica plant looks to the naked eye just as green and leafy and beautiful as your brassica plant, that the deer are going to leave my property and walk over to your place and eat your plant because inside of that green leaf, there's more vitamins and minerals for that deer in yours than there is in mine.
1: Isn't that great?
0: You're starting to make Get yes, me mad. You're saying. stealing all my
1: deer. Well, and, and you know, my clients get a kick out of this terminology, but if you know any invest investors, they they always reference OPM, other people's money, right? You want to invest other people's money and minimize your exposure. Well, my clients and I have this this acronym OPB, other people's bucks. <laughs> We like shooting other people's bucks. It's kind of like sending my kids to your house all summer. They can swim in your pool and eat your groceries, and then they come see me during the holidays or at night. Fantastic plan. So I personally believe, yes, we can shoot more OPBs, bucks that we've never seen as a, as a boat hunter who only has a half acre, who, who can feel and stomach maybe a two- or three-year Oh, these plots don't look like, um, you know, like I see in the magazines, there's cocklebur and all this ugly weed infestation. Get over it. That's Mother Nature's way of healing. That's like a scab on your knee. Get over it. And guess what? You'll be surprised how many of these natural forages are highly attractive to whitetails. So, yes, that's what I firmly believe. Um, We've been doing that on client properties. I've got bucks that come from several miles that we've killed um that, that that's rewarding and quite frankly that's kind of our our flip the script model is to is to be able to do that so that's the plan absolutely
0: now now what about looking a little bit even further down the road you know you mentioned we were talking about how you're you know you're reducing your synthetic inputs but they're not eliminated um, you're still using, you know, roundup and and probably some other herbicides. I don't know if you use any pesticides. I'm sure you still use some fertilizer. So as yeah, you said, I, I you know, a, I have
1: three year plans. You, you know, you're not an organic but, food plotter yet.
0: But as you no, look it, as you no, look down the road, like is there? Because as far as I I'm, I'm aware, Jason, right? Like if you do a Google search for organic food plotting, there's not much that comes right. up. If anything, okay. So so as we sit here in January. January of 2019, I would say that if you woke up today and you were a wealthy bow hunter who had the money to say, say I woke up today and I just bought a thousand acres of whitetail habitat and I wanted to start managing it with an all organic food plot program, I'm not sure there is such a thing, but is there the possibility for such a thing?
1: Uh, Yes and no. And I wrote down here in my notebook, it's probably worth mentioning, I put organic food plotting or organic farming, for that matter, is not equal to healthy soil biology, right? The organic farmer, organic is fun. It's it's really good stuff. And it's the way I personally want to eat in the future. Um, It's hard now, but uh, organic farming also incorporates tillage, right? There's a lot of organic farmers who will till to break up the weed uh, cycle, so, so, that's kind of their way of avoiding the use of synthetic herbicides. So, that does not, tillage you know, completely destroys the soil biology. You know, you have all these micro, uh, these, there's a cool stat 95% of life on land is below your boot sole. I just told my kids this the other day, and they were, they, they seemed fascinated anyway. But, in 90, so there's like this whole frontier below your feet, right? The microbiology is amazing. So, Organic farming is not necessarily the best way to go. This this new... We're kind of calling it biomimicry, right? Because we're mimicking... Uh, the 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 natural biology of the way nature prefers. There's this funny thing about people, and that we think we can jump in and make things better, and and we can't. We just we need to let Mother Nature do her thing. And by no means am I an environmentalist. Um, in fact, I'm probably worse when I jump in my, my my diesel pickup and and contribute to all the negative environmental impacts. But you know. <laughs> I get a lot of science emails and stuff. I, I, not too long ago, this, this uh, email came across my computer, and I, I took a double page and I, I printed it out because I forgot the headline. But th- this is a science kind of a daily science feed, uh, somewhat like you do. Uh, it's not typically real sciencey, but. Here, here's what the, the headline says, and tip, this isn't deer science. This is just science around the world. <laughs> Soil compound fights chronic wasting disease. Now, I don't, you've, you've probably seen this on social media now, and, and maybe even in an article or two. So, of course, like any scientist, instead of reading the article because I don't know who wrote it, it could be you know some nonprofit agency. I flipped down to the bottom to the journal reference. And sure enough, it's peer-reviewed science, and the true title is Soil Humic Acids Degrade CWD Prions and Reduce Infectivity. So this is while I'm, I'm, I'm retraining my biology brain on, on microbiology below the soil, and, and I'm thinking to myself – this fits exactly in line with everything that we're doing in biomimicry is that if we just stop panicking, you and I've had this conversation about CWD. Uh, if we stop the panic and stop slaughtering deer and trying to have this, this, this major human positive impact on CWD and start treating the soils properly, maybe, maybe just maybe this has been around for a very long time But Mother Nature took care of it until we started depleting our soils. That's
0: very interesting. And that's definitely another uh, podcast for another day. Maybe I'll include you because I actually want to do a big CWD panel maybe even later this month.
1: Oh, it's, oh boy. Uh,
0: it's something I have on my agenda for right after ATA because there's a couple events happening at ATA and uh, sort of like almost maybe dueling events. There's an industry event. There's a there's a QDMA event. And, and you know there's a lot of controversy and differing viewpoints out there on CWD. But what you just said is like really out of left field because here, you know, amidst, right, amidst all the bickering and the arguing and the claims uh, versus the facts, then you've got this 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 uh, consulting biologist, Jason Snavely. He's coming in here from left field and he's like, hey, by the way, let me just interject the possibility that maybe like all the the modern farming practices and the deleting of our soils and the depleting of the soil biology has created a ripe environment for the rapid spread and pleuralifery of this disease beyond what would be uh, under normal, healthy uh, habitat conditions. Wow. There,
1: there's hey, listen, there, there's a really, bombshell. Yeah, look, that's Yeah, I mean, left field maybe, but it's really fun being independent and not having a financial source, right? I've never heard a professor of mine or any of them, for that matter, at the Southeast Deer Study Group walk up there and paint this picture that white hey hug a white tail today because they're about extinct this is going to kill them i had a, a a federal biologist who actually was one of my mentors uh, still is when when the first case of cwd well one of them came out he said to me hey he called me up did you hear this so yeah i did yeah oh boy this is it this, this is the end I said no I, I don't believe that happens at all I, I, you know we we are very good look at farmers and by no means am I picking on farmers but I, I know at the beginning of the podcast I talked about the fact that we all reserve the right to change our minds and and if you disagree with that uh, then that's okay, but we should all reserve that right. Farmers are a very conventional uh, a group that man. It's very. I've got some family farmer, you know, uh, farmers in the family. There, you, you're better off not even mentioning any of this to right? Well, it's so, funny. It's funny you, you that, it. it's, funny watch, it's
0: funny you should mention it. It's funny. It's funny you should mention that.
1: Drive around. <coughs> you drive around the farm. You know, you. Li- I know you live in farm country. When you drive around farm country, look at the fields. Count the number of fields that have a cover crop in them. You'll be able to tell it's probably rye, right? It's a monoculture. Look at this year. Look at this. This part has been been humbling for me. Look at the number of fields that you have that, that have never really been wet. I mean, water, standing water that now look like you can go set up a waterfowl blind or grow rice in. I've got one right here at the bottom of my property. There's so much going on in that field and in this area right now from a soil lesson standpoint, it's absolutely mind-blowing. I had farmers say to me, Oh, yeah, I couldn't get on the field this year because of all that rain. I think we had, what, 17 inches of rain in a week or something. It was the wettest year on record. Oh, we've and
0: had, I, I can you tell know what? you we've had over 70 or just under 70 inches of rain now on the year, yeah. which, is, which is the wettest and, and, wettest year in Pennsylvania history.
1: But you know what? I think Mother Nature would have been okay with that. In fact, I think it's natural. It's uh, contrary to what Al Gore thinks. I think it's perfectly natural to have these small changes over time. And you know, if we like to treat the symptoms, kind of like, you know, my Lyme disease and going to a a doctor, we don't like to look at the over or the underlying health problem is, how's your immune system? What's your diet look like? Are you exercising? So we like to look at the water and blame the fact that we got too much rain. Well, what if we didn't destroy the organic matter? You know, organic, the the A horizon is the top horizon. It's full of all the goodies. That A-horizon has disappeared in most of the conventional farms today. What if we had managed that organic matter, we had earthworms, soil microbes, creating good stuff? You would have this porous, uh, beautiful topsoil I hate that term, but this, you get the point. That looks like as, as the, the leaders in this in the in the ag industry call it chocolate cake. You grab chocolate cake cake, it's kind of spongy. It has these pores that, that hopefully earthworms don't move through, but you get the idea. That's what good soil looks like. And you know, Gabe Brown in his book, Dirt to Soil, which he just came out. Fantastic book, by the way. He talks about when he, when his in-laws owned the farm that he – well, right after he took it over from them, uh, his infiltration rate was a half inch per hour, which means that the amount of water that can move through – that soil without standing, eroding, running, you know, washing off all of his synthetic inputs. Now, he can handle this ridiculous amount of rain. He could have handled the rain that we got this year. They only get like 11 to 12, 13 inches of rain a year in his part of North Dakota. So, again, we're treating the symptoms. But drive around and look at these fields. We've completely destroyed. You can't argue with the science. You just can't do it.
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. I actually said something to the farmer who owns uh, a couple properties where I hunt about adding organic matter to the soil the other day. And uh, you know what his his reply to me was? It was three words and I just want to hear your your reaction to this he said manure 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 and that was it sure. that was the end of the conversation
1: well and it's, it's a good thought right and, and it, absolutely uh, animals you know I had stopped it, you know when I was talking about uh plowing uh you know Gabe in his book actually covers these quite nicely but you know I was talking about soil armor I was talking about diversity and living roots and not plowing your fields uh but the experts talk about integrating animals because they're extremely important to soil biology and soil health the soils rely on animal I think about you know the the before we destroyed the bison which by the way it's not a buffalo there there aren't buffalo here they're, they're bison it's the american bison uh they, they 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 moved around in herds big herds they stumbled things right uh, they urinated their manure was everywhere and 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 they naturally fertilized and ate plants and you know the, they're starting to really if there's people including myself are considering bringing livestock, and they're currently bringing livestock onto food plots, including myself, uh, because mowing can somewhat stimulate this and, and appear... To the, to the soil like like it's been uh, consumed by, by, you know, an ungulate, but nothing beats it. And, you know, the, the, you, if you want to keep going to left field, I'll bring you even further. Sometimes I've, I've been told by neighbors that I, I have too many deer and I'm going to uh, cause an outbreak in Lyme disease and, you know, all the good, that good stuff. Sometimes I'll look at 50, 60 deer in a field and I'll say, you know what? A lot of biologists would look at that. Uh, deer people would look at that and say, wow, that's too many deer. I look at that and say, I like all those hooves trampling over my soils. They're actually urinating and defecating right there in my food plot. It may not be quite like the bison did, but hey, you know maybe that's my version of it. So, I thought you were gonna tell me. Uh, that yeah, you're, I. I, I, th- I thought
0: you were gonna tell me you were gonna get a little herd of goats and have them like tied up in your different food plots, and you're <laughs> gonna rotate your goats all around your property over the course of the summer.
1: Yeah, no, goats wouldn't be. The, I, I have I have a herd right now of, of four goats. Um, you haven't seen them yet, but uh, I have a meeting. I actually have a meeting this afternoon about um, much much larger animals. Um, you know, I, I'm not a cowboy. I'm a deer boy, so that's sort of foreign to me. But I understand the importance of, of having these animals, uh, you know, just, well, if just, you want
0: to bring in, know, if well, you're, if you're talking about bringing in like four or five, like <laughs> a- Angus steers to like to fertilize your food plots, I'll go in next fall with you on a side of beef or something. <laughs>
1: Absolutely, the, the grass fed stuff. Ever since my Lyme disease hit, I've realized eating healthy matters, and the grass fed uh, is kind of the direction I'm going. But yeah, you know, when you look at the roller crimper, I know we're still going on here, but you know, I, I talked a little bit about the roller crimper um, on on my regenerative wildlife ag uh, Facebook group, and I've I've written a little bit about it. The roller crimper was designed to crimp and kill cover crop species um, rye, you know, things like that, hairy vetch and, and mash it down into the soil, so to speak, really simulating what the bison did before we did what we did to the bison. So we're trying to, you know, in a way we're trying to think like that, you know, no matter what I do, I can't get my roller crimper to poop in my food plot. So if, if getting Texas longhorns or, or some sort of cattle on my grounds. Um, we'll do it that's what I'm willing to do well listen man you are definitely out in left field
0: we gotta wrap it up cause we're over time but uh, it is a fascinating topic and uh, despite uh, you know what you thought about my potential sarcasm. I, I was sincere when I told you the other day that I, I believe that you are on the bleeding edge of uh, a coming revolution in the food plot world, and I, I think that I think that as time goes by, we're going to see more and more and more people uh, adopting these methodologies because it's not just better for, you know, the environment, it's better for your pocketbook as a landowner, it, it's better for uh, the deer in the long run because it allows, uh, you know, nature to take its course and to balance itself in such a way that, as you pointed out, you're you're producing uh, a crop that has such a good nutrient density that the deer are actually going to seek these food plots out, uh, you know very likely in preference to mm-hmm. to similar plots that may be in the same area so just makes a lot of sense on a lot of levels and again at the end of the day you know, as hunters, as conservationists, you know, we don't like the term environmentalist, but we all like the term conservationist, you know, it just, mm. it really dovetails with with that conservation ethic and this idea of being a good steward and leaving it better than we found it. So I, I certainly appreciate your time and, and your expertise. And uh, it's a conversation that's going to continue throughout the year. I know you're going to be touching on a number of these things in your whitetails column uh in peterson's bull hunting so for everyone who's listening make sure your subscriptions are up to date and, and jason is going to be sharing uh his experiences as he continues this journey uh on his own property and 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 the things that his clients around the country are doing as well
1: Yeah, no, that's good stuff. And I do think, sort of as a take-home message, I I do think that we will be able to produce healthier whitetails and and ultimately larger bucks. I really do think that this will equate to that, not to make it sound oversimplified, but it's going to take some work. But uh, I do want to acknowledge you and thank you um, I, I realized that that most, probably most bow hunters who read um, the magazine and, and read my whitetails column maybe aren't as interested in this kind of thing as I am. So, you know, uh, I'd like to thank you and recognize you for, for accepting my latest column. I know it, it was, well, I didn't think I'd ever get it by you, to be completely honest with you. Uh, because it is, it is kind of science. It is kind of out there, but the, I think the end result in saving money and improving our ecosystem and making your property more attractive, whether it's three acres or three thousand acres, is absolutely awesome. So there's a lot of people who aren't publishing this kind of stuff because it seems, uh, maybe as you say, out in left field. Um, it's not. It's right. The way we've been food plotting uh, since the '80s is is wrong. Uh, we've learned a lot of great things, but it's time to have an open mind, admit that we've done wrong, uh, ignore these monocultures that we're planting, stop focusing on uh, you know plowing, discing, fertilizing, and and really focus on improving the soil biology. So, thank you for that platform.
0: Well, you got it, man. And I'll tell you what, next thing we're gonna do if you're successful in, you know, leading a revolution in food plotting and getting everyone to change their minds, I'm gonna send you to Washington because we could use a whole (laughs) lot of politicians. We we could use we could use a few politicians in Washington who were willing to stand up and and look at the American people and say, I I've reserved the right to change my mind and I've thought about some of these issues and and, and I Mm -hmm. think that we're going to reach some common ground here and get some things done. So I would say there's a better yeah. chance of uh, a food plot revolution than there is of a revolution in Washington. But if anyone can do it, Jason, you can. Thanks so much for uh, being with us here today. appreciate the work that you do uh, for me regularly uh, in the magazine and the insights that you share with the readers. As you said, it's it's a little bit different, but but then again, I like to think that some of the value that we bring is maybe, maybe there are actually a few things things that uh, you can find in peterson's bow hunting that you won't find everywhere else you know which which makes it worth, makes it worth your eight or ten dollars a year to have that uh, beautiful little magazine delivered to your mailbox
1: mm-hmm. yeah, well thanks for having me it was my pleasure it was, it was fun to be on the other side of the podcasting thing for for once so thanks for having me appreciate you, it you got it
0: buddy take care Thank you for listening to Peterson's Bowhunting Radio, the official podcast of hardcore bowhunters. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bowhunting on your local newsstand or check us out on the web at bowhuntingmag.com.